Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello, I'm Mayhem. Hello, I'm Chaos. And our happiness is egg-shaped. Happiness is egg-shaped and loves a circle with no end. No, no, it's not about this last night. I just said happiness is egg-shaped. Hey, um, happiness is egg-shaped. Happiness is egg-shaped and loves a circle with no end. Hello and welcome to the Happiness Is podcast with me, Bruce Aitchison from Happiness Is Egg-Shaped. And today we have a lion. Uh, a lion who got to wear the lion strip, but a man with a lion heart, a man that you would follow into battle and you can be sure that this man would go to battle. I am a massive fan. He's already been warned that there are going to be fanboy moments when I get very excited. Uh, he's a man who has been to places I've been to and started in places that I have a bit of a story about. So I am really looking forward to see where this goes. Uh, he is a man who... The rugby community rallied around very recently and it just showed the love that everybody has for him. And that is more than happens on a rugby pitch. That is because he is a bloody good bloke. I am absolutely delighted to welcome the one and the only Mr. Tom Smith. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. You're very kind. No, not at all. I've hardly even scratched the surface. Just just wait until we get cracking. So, Tom, where are you? Because lots of people will think, Tom Smith, Scottish prop forward, you must be in a blacksmith somewhere in deepest, darkest countryside of Scotland. Where are you? I'm just uh, an hour out of Bordeaux in a uh, near a place called Marmont, just uh, southwest France. So the sun is shining <laughs> so, and uh, 
yeah, it's it's, it's a nice place to be. Yeah, a bit a bit. Life, life's tough in the south of France, I bet. Yeah, it's a bit cold in the mornings, but <laughs> I can't complain. <laughs> you're willing to get over that. So you're in France, um, but everybody knows Tom Smith is a Scottish prop forward. So how long have you been in France and what took you there? We just had, had an opportunity to come over. Uh, I've been here now pushing 10 years now, so nine nine years now. So, uh, yeah, we I played here for a couple of years at Brief and uh, we always enjoyed it and uh, the opportunity came to come back. So we, we, we jumped at it and, yeah, we've not really looked back. We, you know, we love coming back to to friends and family and but uh the outdoor life a bit a bit of space and sunshine of course is yeah is, is something we do enjoy yeah I'll, I'll bet you do everybody does so let's go right back to that then how do you end up in breve i mean of, of all the clubs what is it that breve offered to you or what is it that you thought breve's the place to be i think it was pretty much the only uh the only offer on the table in terms of <laughs> France, and so uh, and they they just won the European Cup, I think the the year or two before. So uh, seemed like a good place to go, and it was you know it was the early days of professionalism. So it was uh, it was a bit of an adventure for for all of us. I think I ended up out there with uh, with Gregor, uh, Vinny, Steve Brotherston. I think Sean Longstaff was down in Castres, so uh, it became a you know there was and I think Brian Redpath ended up in Narbonne, Stuart Reed Narbonne, so we had a bit of a group down in Southwest France. So it was it was quite nice. We kind of enjoyed each other's company. We kept up, we sort of caught up quite regularly, and yeah, it was a good place to be. Who who looked after Stuart Reed? I think <laughs> I think Isla, his wife. He always needed, he needed somebody, but. Uh, yeah, I think um, no, we went down down and stayed with them in the in the, on the beach in Melbourne. And you think you know it's you know we we started playing rugby because because uh, we just, we love rugby, and then then suddenly it became a job and a a career, and uh, it was nice. It gave us opportunities to to visit places and work in places that we would never have been to before. And France is a crazy rugby culture, and. The home patch is everything you don't lose at home. You put your head in places that no sane person ever should be putting their head. What's it like being a front row forward in France? It was a, it was a good good place to learn. I think. Um, uh, I mean, I I turned up after in uh, it would have been ninety nine, so it would have been just after the World Cup, and we we arrived on match day. And I, they put me straight on the bench, and I didn't know anything. I didn't know the lineup calls. I didn't know anything. We arrived at the pre-match meal, which was about three and a half hours, four hours before kickoff, and there were, you know, everyone was smoking. There was like ten bottles <laughs> of red wine on the table, and just, like, <laughs> and it was just, yeah, it was just very different. But uh, you, you get on the pitch, and it was quite violent compared to Scotland, and and yeah, just. Uh, random acts of violence were seemed to be quite tolerated over there, so uh, you kind of, kind of got used to it quite quickly. But uh, yeah, it was good. You know, you, you know what it's like. You go to uh, a, a small club in a in a town in the corner of southwest France, and it's you know we were one year away from uh, past European champions, and I think 
the year before I got there, they lost in the final to Bath. So they were a, a pretty rated team then. And so it was everyone's cup final, which is kind of, you know, the big clubs now like Toulouse and Claremont when they come to town. It's a big day, and uh, yeah, it's like it's like you say, we'd would have uh, teams would send their second teams to to play us at home, and then we'd we'd go away, and it would be we'd send our second team, and we'd just accept that we're we're not going to win too many away from home. And why why is that? Especially when they bring in foreigners like yourself, Gregor Stewart Reed, and then now you know the All Blacks, or there's so many teams have former All Blacks. Why do you think that culture is still there? I don't know. I, th- I think the, the the bigger clubs have have moved on now. So uh, I, I I think this they still place a lot of lot in home form. But obviously it turned on its head a little bit with empty stadiums. Home form has been been less of a less of a strength almost, and teams are playing away with a lot more confidence. But I think it's just the French crowds can. Can be quite harsh, but if uh, if you don't go well at home, the, the crowd will turn on you pretty quickly. I think we're quite a tolerant lot uh, over in Scotland, <laughs> and uh, you learn pretty quickly. If you lose at home, then you don't want to be bumping into someone in the supermarket who will tell you in uh, no uncertain terms what you need to do. And were you but, instantly recognisable when you were in the supermarket or walking along the street? Was it? Was it like being in a small town and everybody knew who the rugby team were? Um, yeah, yeah, I guess so. I mean, Breve is a really small town, and uh, relative to you know now that the bigger clubs tend to be in the bigger cities and everything. But yeah, it was it, it, in many ways it was a bit like Northampton, just a, a smallish town and absolutely fanatical support and just rugby was everything and the, the whole town came out to support us and it was uh you know it has its pluses and has its negatives but uh mostly positives yeah that that passion i think everybody envies in the uk and in pro 14 when you're watching those games in france when there is a crowd i think there is a bit of jealousy there isn't there so how, how do you go from that atmosphere to 67,000 at Murrayfield to 20,000 Bayern fans at Narbonne who are desperate for your blood. Does that impact on how you play or do you just get your head down and go for it? I think, I think I, I certainly just, you know, you, you, any pitch was, was like another. I think, uh, you know, hindsight's a great thing and I, I guess wisdom, wisdom, the problem with wisdom, I guess it comes a bit too late and you, you kind of look back and you think, I wish I'd. If I'd known that and known what I know now, then I'd, I'd, I would have been a better player, and I would have. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, you know, you, you just get on with it, don't you? I think uh, you know the training was the training was different in France. We didn't we did no contact at all the whole week except Wednesday night. We we played for about an hour and a half, and there were just pitch battles. It was like A's <laughs> against B's, and we just it was just a big fight, and and that was our. Uh, <laughs> Other than that, we we didn't hit the scrum machine. We didn't. We did about five lineouts, and we just played this one big game on a. It was a Tuesday or Wednesday night, and and that was it. So it was it was kind of like uh, playing two games a week, and uh, but you know it was uh, it was yeah a little bit more relaxed. You know, we'd go out for lunch. You know, two or three times a week, have a have a few drinks, and it was 
it was a bit bit more relaxed i guess than than pro rugby is now or so, uh, you know as it became did, did you get did you get phone calls from other guys saying what's it like in france there's an opportunity did you did or did you ask anybody what it was like before you went uh no we we just uh we just went you know it was you you've got to understand you the way professionalism went after the 95 world cup they they announced the game was going professional and i just just finished um finished uni and i was playing at watsonians and and uh we were doing the northern north and midlands and the inter-district championship and suddenly we got called to a meeting and everybody got off contracts there were three three types of contract three levels and uh i think they're all three years and uh and that was it everybody signed up and uh it was kind of make it up as you go along a little bit and uh you know we turned up at murrayfield but we all played for our clubs and our districts and there were no uh you know the pro teams hadn't really been formed yet they existed as districts but four districts but we didn't have anyone to play and then it progressed and it was you know as you can imagine a bit chaotic then then agents came into the picture and you, you know everybody was getting themselves an agent and then suddenly you know breeze came onto the onto the um scene and said do you fancy a couple of years in france so we went for it yeah i bet you didn't I think, take too long to consider that one <laughs> no you know it was it, it, I, I think it's uh it, it's nice to try new things obviously and it's, you, you, you look back on i look back on rugby and think you know i've got to play and work in some pretty cool places toured all over the all over the world so i can't have too many complaints and a couple of years living and working in france was you know it, was, it made me a better player um because we didn't really do any fitness there it, it kind of made me take ownership of my my fitness and my sort of strength and conditioning which was uh which was quite good in some ways and and actually uh yeah i i think um i had a couple of pretty good seasons uh scotland wise playing when i was playing in france just because uh yeah i i, I don't know it was there were some bigger big old props in france back in the day i mean there are some big boys now but uh these kind of awkward guys that that you, you look at them physically and you know they they wouldn't do well in a beep test or a bronco or anything like that but uh <laughs> they seem to manage to be horrible in a scrum and just make your life misery and it was uh yeah having my head shoved up my backside every now and again wasn't a bad thing <laughs> <laughs> you were you were always labeled as a small prop or a rugby playing prop or uh did that ever did that ever bother you did you pay any attention to that did it fuel the fire no not really i mean i when i signed a contract i was um I think it was about 96 kilos and I, and, uh, you know, my, my fighting weight was probably about 105, 106. So you look at that now and, uh, that's a standoff. Uh, yeah. It's a different world. And, you know, I, I, you know, I wasn't a massive fan of gym work or anything like that, but I think most backs now would, would be lifting more than I could lift. And so yeah, things have changed, but yeah, I think, um, you know, some of the, some of the size of player knocking around now is uh 
it's a uh, it is a different world i think there was a a player in france who was about 124 who was uh regarded as you know being a giant and now that's pretty standard I mean, you know i think it's that you know it's a different game but yeah i'm not sure how i've fared in rugby these days uh i, th- I think you would i think you would be all right and you said that you you started because you loved it and you your career has been in that really strange time that rugby went through where it didn't really know what it was and it was this professional thing which meant people were kind of behaving the same as they were before it's just they were getting legally paid for it and then everybody got big and then it was right now we need defense coaches what what did you as a player do through that do you just do as you're told and keep working and just enjoy the next experience that came along yeah i I think it's probably not a bad thing that um things like facetime and iphones and camera phones didn't exist back in the day but uh you know i think you know i I think it took a while while professional standards were coming in the, the amateur side of things took a took a little while to to fade away and which was you know which is uh not necessarily a bad thing but uh you know it was it was uh it was good you, like like you said uh um w- when you're in the middle of it you you, you you tend not always to appreciate it and realize that you know we're you know in the 2003 world cup we spent three weeks in you know north queensland uh in the sunshine preparing for a for a world cup it wasn't you know we're all moaning about it and saying it's it's a bit boring. We're like, you know, the beach is five minutes away. It's uh, the sun is shining. Uh, we're doing what we love, and and uh, so yeah, I think uh, that, that's where kind of hindsight and a bit of perspective comes in. Yeah, but, hindsight. Yeah. The greatest gift ever given to man is hindsight. Yeah, yeah. So going all the way back and what must feel like a different person. You were at Rannoch School, which to say it's remote is is a bit of an understatement really isn't it yeah it was a it was a bit of a it was a bit of a driver i mean it's good it's what good well you you get to perth and you've got another another hour and a half i would say you you're in there right at the foot of the highlands really so uh and uh down a one-way road so you it's a you know it was good for me it was uh Oh, you know, it was a, it was it, it was a nice place. It was uh, in terms of rugby, we had a really good, uh, enthusiastic rugby coach called Peter Rowan. Actually, he's uh, I think he's still doing his thing. And uh, yeah, you know, it was it got a bit chilly up there every now and again. But we uh, and lots of the training sessions were cancelled because the pitches were just frozen or covered in snow. But we just uh, ran, and you know, we we. Yeah, enjoyed ourselves because it was such a small school. We we tended we tended not to win many games, if I'm brutally honest. But I sometimes think you know being on the being on the losing team is is not necessarily the worst thing in the world. You kind of learn how to uh, learn how to fight and learn how to uh, um, you know improve against better opponents. So uh, yeah, I, I think it, it it was it was good for me. It suited me. You must have loved it, though, to be to keep going with it 
something must have fueled the fire at Rannoch because if you were in a small school mostly getting beat, now a lot of people would throw in the towel. You know, kids get a hard time now because they want success and they want but you found something that kept you going and wanted to continue when you left school. Yeah, I think, um, I guess that's, you know, partly the environment, the coaching, the the school and, uh, yeah, you, you know, that rubs off onto you. I, I, I started at uni in uh, Dundee and went to join Dundee high school. And, uh, you know, I, you don't really know what to expect. I think that that's where a lot of players drop off. I guess you 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 finish school, you can be uh, you know the captain of your first fifteen, and then you go to a club and you're you're back down at the bottom of the food chain, and you yeah. try and work your way back up. And and uh, yeah, you know, I, I I did my time at Dundee High School, but and yeah. I spent, you know, spent a few years in the seconds, but it didn't do me any harm. It was a you know it was a great club for me. Yeah, Dundee is a great club. A great um, club. I used to coach at Dundee, so I know the place very well. And yeah. there was always an influx of students. We had a group of cracking Irish players uh, who were there doing medicine and dentistry and brought a, just a brilliant, uh, added a bit more to the culture of the place. But you learnt from an absolute master there, didn't you? I, there were there were some good, good guys there. There was... Um, in terms of front row play, I would, in, these are the days where you'd, you'd do every Tuesday night, you'd do about an hour of live live scrum training. And there was a prop there called Danny Errington. Who, yeah, uh, horrible. Um, <laughs> mate, rest in peace. And uh, But uh, he was, yeah, it was horrible. I'd, I'd have a big like scab on the back of my neck and he turned me inside out every session. And... Uh, just week, week by week by week, I kind of learned to just get better at handling it, and uh, you know, it was it, it was old school. He it, it wasn't he wasn't putting his arm out over my shoulder and saying this is what you should be doing. He was just uh, drilling me week after week. So uh, you know, it's the it's, it's the best way to learn. And, uh, and yeah, it was. And obviously, David Leslie was the was the coach there as well. And yeah. Anyone who knows David, he, he's a he doesn't quite suffer an inten- fools. Intense character, <laughs> I, and uh, I remember we played a game at. Uh, I I hadn't been in the first team very often at all, and I'd been there for three years, I think, by then. And we were playing at Stu Mel, and anyone who's played at Stu Mel, there's changing rooms dotted along underneath the stands, these tiny little shoeboxes, and and I. I was looking for the toilet, so I went went around the corner to go to the next door and ch- change room. And he, David had our one of our back rowers pinned up against the wall, <laughs> and uh, just uh, giving me a few words of wisdom pre kick off. So I was uh, I was out, out of there quickly, but it was uh, yeah, it was good. It was a good club. Good, um, you know, it was, it was a bit like the, you know the North and Midlands. The whole whole area had a had a pretty good good vibe to it, and. You know, we, uh, I think Dundee formed the, the spine of the North and Midlands team and you bring in guys like uh, McIver and Rob Wainwright, the, the Sterling boys, Stuart Hamilton, all these guys. And I was a, a young young lad at the time and you're looking around to these these men to show you how to behave, show you how to 
at the play and it was uh it was good yeah I, I it certainly helped me do you think that's missing now that players don't get to experience club rugby that you were a prop forward who spent a lot of time in the twos yet we've got young pros who are going straight from school into professional academies and not being turned inside out by Danny Harrington every Tuesday night for an hour. Yeah, I, I think that there's something, something to be said for it. I, you know, I, I, I know it, you know, if I'd been uh, coming through the system now, you, you go into an academy that they, they stick you on a, if you're a prop, they'll, they'll check your weight and, so you need to put on 10 kilos 15 kilos 20 kilos whatever and uh you you may not touch a ball for six months or a year and you just get big and it, I, I think there's a place for it I, I don't know how you uh how you make a place for it but uh it, it, it's the same all over it's uh it, it, it's tricky because you know the reality is a, a 96 97 kilo prop is gonna struggle in pro rugby um and it's it's getting the whole package of the technique and uh, enough bulk to survive and uh, yeah just so yeah I, I don't really have an answer but I, I think um, I, I I would be great if uh, you know some of our our old pros could go back into the club game and we could keep that that link but it's difficult when you've played ten years of pro rugby there's uh, it's difficult to walk downstairs on a Sunday morning. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind go training. So uh, it's uh, it's it, yeah, it's it's you know I, I think Scottish club rugby seems seems to be alive and well. I think the gap between club rugby and and full pro rugby is is got got bigger and bigger. But that's not anyone's fault. That's that's the nature of the game. And uh, um, yeah, I, I, I know the Super Sixes. I haven't really seen much of it, but. Uh, We'll see how that pans out. That could provide the the gap, but there will be a, a space in maybe those teams for uh, one or two older, more pros to uh, bring a bit of old school to it. And uh, you know, you know, well, some of my best memories are you know trips to Italy with the Northern Midlands and just uh, you know go over play a game and then. Uh, go and experience the uh the nightlife of a small town in italy and it was a it was a good place to be so the you, you spoke about the whole player there so there's the there's the technique and there's what happens on the field but you're you're not playing for more than you are playing so in those formative years shall we say with danny on a tuesday night but you were also a student in dundee involved in club rugby now being a student you've already mentioned quite often is when it tails off i've got other priorities what kept you going back was it that you thought if i keep going i'll be able to play for scotland and be a british lion or was it just well what was it what was it that kept you going to rugby um you know i don't know i really i um i used to go if, you, you know dundee I, I lived on the perth road and there was a uh, quite a steep hill down to the down to the river down to the railway line outside my my flat it was about 200 meters and i'd uh do sprints up there a couple of times a week like uh 15 or 20 and um quite quite brutal quite hard work and i, I wasn't if, if you'd asked me why i was doing it i wanted to be fit and 
wanted to play rugby and be as good as I could be, but I wasn't thinking there's a lion store in three years. That's what I want to do. Or, uh, I, I was just, uh, enjoy, you know, I enjoyed rugby. I wanted to be better at it. And then suddenly, uh, an opportunity comes along and I got invited to a couple of Scotland sessions. Um, and just, you know, back again, back in the day, you'd, you'd get a call on a Tuesday and you'd go along on a Wednesday night and you'd just be cannon fodder for the, for the Scotland team before the match and do live scrummaging and things like that. And the first, the first time I went, do you remember there was a, a, a second row called, um, Jeremy Richardson, Jeremy Richardson, uh, Edinburgh Ackies. Edinburgh Ackies. And, uh, he was, he was, uh, you know, he was the, the senior guy in the group of cannon fodder that day. And he, he, um, you know, we, we were a bit of a disorganized bunch and he pulled the forwards in and, and basically <laughs> said, uh, we're not going backwards and, uh, anyone in, we all go in and it turned into a bit of a battle <laughs> and, uh, we suddenly started, uh, causing their scrum a few problems and a few fists were, were flying and a few punches were thrown and it was good. I think it was great for the Scotland team. I think they won, they won at the weekend. I think, uh, you know, I think Jim Telfer knew what he was uh, <laughs> knew what he was doing, and uh, yeah, I, I guess in a, in a way, that's a way of getting noticed, and uh, that was you know possibly uh, I don't I don't really know maybe that was uh, the start of uh, my journey in a way. Well, you've mentioned two names there: David Leslie and Jim Telfer, both intimidating characters. If they told me I had to be somewhere at one o'clock, I think I'd be there at 10 to one to make sure I was there at one o'clock. Jim Telfer was a huge fan of yours and and that's just proven and, and you know that. Now, Jim is a hard, hard man who loves rugby, loves Scotland, loves the British Lions. What, what was it like working with him in those two different environments? One, almost the comfort of Murrayfield, but then the absolute cauldron of South Africa with the Lions? I think um, uh, Jim, one of, one of the things I think people don't underestimate about Jim, but they don't understand necessarily is, is it's probably not something, it's not a phrase that existed back then, but it's emotional intelligence and his, he kind of, he, he would give it out and he would demand high standards, but uh, he, you know, you you could be honest, and nothing was taken personally, and uh, criticism was given in a with the objective of improving. And uh, I think, um, yeah, I, you know, you knew where you stood, and that's that's what you can really ask for. I think in in '97 in South Africa, it was for for Jim. He almost had to prove himself all over again to a new group of players who had uh, never worked with him before. They'd heard, you know, how that he was, uh, you know, a, a taskmaster, a hard man. And, you know, he had to uh, um, almost overcome that and get their trust. And, you know, by the end of the tour, I think uh, you could say to a man, even players not, not starting the test, there was absolutely um, just respect for him and, uh, what he achieved and how he, uh, you know, managed that group of players. Because there were a few uh, sticky moments on the tour, and that 
it was you know the south africa were and as they as they have always been and always will be a, a big physical team and uh you know we needed to be drilled and we needed to be ready and he uh yeah he you know i i have a lot of affection for jim and really good memories of working with him although at the time you know that's the great thing about rugby at the time you will you know you can be cursing <laughs> cursing him and as time goes by you forget about uh you forget about the, the tough times and you remember the good times and but uh yeah they were mostly good and you're a you're a really rare breed you're a scotland test lion there's there's not many of you around i think there are more pandas in scotland than there are uh, test lions so how how was that was that important do you think for jim to have some of his foot soldiers in the camp no i i, I don't think so I, I think uh it 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 has to be uh I think one of the things that Jim Geach and Fran Cotton as a as a group bring to the table or brought to the table is whoever goes on that plane has to have a chance of getting in the test team. And that philosophy was stated from day one and uh and uh they backed it up and uh I was fortunate enough to to to, to get in the team and you know, sometimes on a trip like that it's it is you can be in the right place at the right time and you know there are, there are a couple of games that you probably i was probably lucky not to be involved in and uh then you know suddenly momentum gets behind you and and people start talking about you as a test player and uh then off you go but it was it was yeah it was it was a it was a great trip and it was you know on, on the social side and and everything it was, it was kind of the almost like marked the end of amateur rugby in a way there were lots of uh mixing and socializing with supporters and uh just uh south africa is a pretty good place to to go and play rugby and, and hopefully this 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 summer it will be the same i'm hopeful this time we'll get uh, one or two uh lines from the scotland team i, yeah, I certainly certain hope so yeah and how how did you find out? Because I, I love these stories of how did you find out you'd got into the Lions squad? I, I got a I think I got a call from a, a journalist. Uh, I I was completely unaware that, of the announcement or anything. I I just I, I you know nowadays it's you know it's on Sky News and it's a, just it's a big thing. And it, back in the day, you'd, you know, you'd get a letter through the post and and. That was it. it was okay, fairly quiet. There wasn't this uh, social media thing that if you if you weren't watching TV, that was it. You you didn't know. I I didn't know what a mobile phone was back then. So uh, it was just if I happened to be at home and the phone rang, I'd, I'd answer it. So it was yeah, it was it. It's difficult to explain. I I didn't start. That was my first season playing for Scotland, and I I started the first game. I was on the bench. And I had no awareness that this tour was going on. On I was the selection just just kind of uh, just happened that way. And later, talking to Jim, he mentioned he'd seen me at the Melrose Sevens uh, a couple of years before. So and said, you know, that was that was one of the you know the the moments where I'd come, I guess, come into his consciousness in a way. And uh, that was maybe again 
you know, right place at the right time. You're an absolute fraud, Tom Smith. You're an absolute fraud. You're doing two sprint sessions up and down a hill a week when you're an amateur rugby player. You're playing sevens at Melrose and not just playing sevens. You're supposed to be a prop. You're supposed to be a pie in a pint kind of guy. What were you doing playing sevens at Melrose? What? Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The, the great thing about, uh, I, I mean, I, I think that the, the Seventh Circuit in Scotland is, uh, is uh, just a great, great way to spend a, a month or so. Just you know, one week it was a different place, and you'd go out. and Melrose is obviously the big one, and it was uh, yeah. I don't know it was a, a my my I'm trying to get my son to go up there for the weekend uh, for the next. Well, if it happens, obviously, but uh, it's a great. It's a it's a really good good weekend, and obviously the sevens runs at the beginning of the season, and it's quite a, quite a good way of doing preseason without doing pre-season you just go and play two or three sevens tournaments and you know you've played sevens it's probably the most exhausting form of rugby <laughs> in the world and uh and uh yeah you, you play four or five sevens matches in a, in a day and then do the same the next day or the following weekend and no you that's get, not you true you only quickly. do that tom if you're winning so you were winning the sevens tournaments you weren't just you don't you if you're rubbish, it's one game and home. You were playing in a very strong seven. Yeah, I mean the thing, uh, the the thing about putting a prop into a sevens team is, first of all, you you get quite a few turnovers at scrum time. So, uh, uh, and I, I I had to throw in a, a line out, which uh, put an end to any thought because there was talk of me becoming a hooker, and that quickly uh, ended that conversation. <laughs> But uh, but yeah no um you'd come up I, I remember in, we played a I think it was a South African team at Melrose and there was a I played a I think it was a ten or a centre he was in the front row opposite me and there's always five or six scrums in a sevens match and you can as I learned from Danny Harrington you can make somebody quite uncomfortable in a in a scrum if they don't know what they're doing and uh, yeah I, I yeah. It wasn't a lot of chasing back and 60 meter sprints for me. Yeah, I, I just I love Hi. it. And Can that, you hear me that now? yeah, yeah, we got you now. That that was a that was an impressive squad of boys though who went on to do 
or were already doing well and then continued. Who else was in your Watsonian seven squad? Oh, well, we had uh, obviously Scott, Scott Hastings, um, John Kerr, um, Gordon Hanna, Kakodi Boy, uh, Paul Rayburn, um, let me think, Duncan Hodge, Hodge, played, uh, let me think. You have McKelvey up front as well? Uh, I think McKelvey and Gordon McCrell were, were on the bench. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if they And uh, I think it's a guy called Neil, Neil Hanna, I think, at Scrum Half. I think I'm uh, I'm running out of names now. Yeah, it was the impressive. Cammy Mather. Oh yeah, Cam. Well, don't forget Cammy. He'll crucify yeah. you for that. Uh, that that's an impressive name list. And to, Jim Telfer's obviously from Melrose was there and saw you perform. And I, I've heard him tell that story. So you then get to go with the Lions and talking of rare breed, but also Geach and Jim Telfer as the coaches. You've got Gregor and Rob Wainwright and Doddy, and you know things were things were looking pretty good. How did the Scottish boys respond to what happened to Doddy? I, I think they were the same as everybody. It was uh, in in the game. I, I I didn't see it happen in the game, so I we came off, and there was something obviously brewing, and uh, the the I think the president of and Pumalanga, the team we played uh, in the press conference, def- tried to defend his actions. So it, there was a lot of anger, and and it, it it took a while. You know, like I said, there were these things would be all over social media very quickly nowadays. It, it we didn't get to see actually what had happened until uh, you know a day or so later. But uh, we, you know, we knew something pretty awful had happened, and um, yeah, pretty horrific. But uh, yeah, it was you know just a huge disappointment. I think uh, to get that far, and uh, I think he was uh, certainly in the frame for a for a test spot. The way he was playing, in fact, to have it ended in that way was uh, just a shame. Who who on that tour did you meet? I won't go for the dirt, so I'm not going to ask you to dish dirt on anybody. Who did you go on that tour, and you didn't know? or you had already had an idea of them and it changed positively or who did you go on that tour with and you became mates with and you didn't see it coming? I think, uh, I, the, the nice thing about Lions tour, I think I've, I've said this before is you, you, you make a, you Geach said it in the, in the first test in the pre-match chat the night before you, you kind of, you'll make friends for life. You may not see each other for for a few years, but you'll you'll kind of have that that connection, and uh, you know from time to time you'll bump into each other at a dinner or some sort of charity event or anything. And uh, yeah, I I made uh, you know uh, just lots of friendships like that in a way. I I uh, may surprise you to hear this, but I I keep myself to myself. And uh, just um, just sort of quietly try to get on with things. So, um, but you know, I've I'm still in contact with quite a, quite a lot of guys from that trip, and you know, I'm fortunate to to have done it. So, 
yeah, naming names, I, I don't know. I think uh, it was it was a very uh, united, sociable tour, and a lot of good people. Yeah, it's it's a lot of people's moment. You know, the living with the lions DVD, and now it's on whatever streaming site. It it's watched a lot because it was the first really of its kind. But everybody watched it and thought that looks like a whole heap of fun. They're having a drink. They're arsing about. John Bentley's doing that. They're doing the court session. It, it's almost a different world for a lot of pros now. And a lot of professionals now are desperate to go and play for the Barbarians because that's where they kind of maybe see that as an outlet. What was the difference between 97 and 2001? Um, I, I think... Obviously, the game was four years in four years longer into professionalism. Um, or, uh, I I think the philosophy was slightly different. And this this is not necessarily a criticism of the 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 coaching or the management. I I, I don't think they were as tight as Jim Fran and Geach. I think it's difficult to match that level of uh, you know trust and um, self awareness that they had, but. I think also the one thing you can't do on a Lions tour, and I think it's it's a mistake that's been made again since then, is is pick your team before you get out there. Have a have an idea of your test team. I think it's uh, you have to um, go, you know, go go with a very open mind. I think one of the the really important things about '97 was you. You'd get up after a game on a, on a Saturday or a Tuesday or Wednesday, and you'd train the next morning with the team playing the next day. And you'd hold bags, and you'd uh, you know you were, your body was hurting. But and but in two thousand and one, we almost became two separate sides in a way, just a, a weekend team and a midweek team, and there was movement between the two teams. And but uh, we, um, you know, there was unity and cohesion amongst the players but it it, it felt different and uh that's and you know that we're, we're forgetting that, that it was the finest of fine margins that that uh cost us the the win on that trip in the second test we were well up at half time and um you know really we should have uh we should have won but uh you know these are the the, the marginal gains i guess and the, the, the smallest of details can can change everything and the tour is you know had had that second test gone to plan or had we won that line out in the last test um we'd be remembering the tour very differently yeah so uh, the, the other bit to the four years that's passed yourself and paul wallace you know everybody at the moment is picking their lions team so after every six nations weekend jeremy guskett and will carling and scott hastings have picked their lions 15 in that moment which is really just for show and for social media because there's so much water to travel under the bridge between now and then. You and Paul Wallace probably wouldn't have featured in many, many teams in the run-up to it, but you absolutely proved yourself in the moment and the bits that didn't happen in the 80 minutes obviously counted as well. Jim Telfer and Ian McGeekin knew you and worked with you and Paul Wallace had done. So... By the time 2001 came along, surely you were a shoe-in to start for the test team. Um, 
it, but it shouldn't be that way. It should be, uh, you know, the reality, as we've seen in, in this Six Nations, that, that there are some very good players um, who haven't found form and some other players who've come from nowhere to be, to be you know, the form players of the tournament. So I, I think in that respect, you, you, you know, obviously good players will always be good players, but you want your good players to be on form. So um, there has to be that, that open-mindedness in selection. And, uh, you know, that's where I, you know, you look at uh, what is a fairly young Scotland team and you, th you think there's several players in that, in that group that you think if they got into the Lions environment, they got the chance to improve, yeah. they would improve very quickly. And it's just, you know, getting on, getting on that flight fit and uh, getting the opportunity. And is that what happened to you in '97? Did you get better because you were in that environment? Yeah, I, I, I think so, without a shadow of doubt. And I think um, anyone who, who's done, you know, four of that length, so we're talking, you know, seven, seven, eight weeks, and you play that that often and train that often, you you just get that match hardness and that fitness, and uh, you reach a new level. And uh, I think, you know. As a, as a relatively young player, um, suddenly being uh, thrown in the mix and surrounded by these players that I've you know, been watching for the last few years on TV and on the on the Lions tour before, and you uh, you have to step up, and if you don't step up, uh, it's a tough place to be. What was the come down like? You've you've just beaten South Africa in South Africa. When you got home and started to train and play again, was there a bit of a this is, you know, this is not the Lions. Uh, do you know what? I didn't. I I got back from the the tour and I uh, I didn't play for the most of the next season. I had a uh, um, a uh, problem with my um, well, it seemed to be a problem with my pelvis. It turned out to be a hernia, and it just took a while to sort out. So I, I mean, you've got to remember these are back in the days with that. Uh, they had these hydraulic scrum machines. They used to have one uh, on the wall at Murrayfield. And um, it had, instead of uh, just like a, a normal floor, they had these, rub these rubber coated bar metal bars. So you, it was pretty much 100% grip. And you'd pack down against this machine. You'd push it in and then it would push back at you. And it, more often than not, it would be someone, Jim or Richard Dixon. And it just pulled down this lever and the machine would just squeeze you back slowly. And you've got uh, second rows and everyone squeezing one way and the machine pushing you back. And this machine is not, is not going to lose. And uh, we had the same sort of machine in, uh, in South Africa. So they, before each scrum session, we drilled down these, uh, these um, spikes into the ground. They went about a foot into the ground. And so the machine was you know, it wasn't really going to move very much. And uh, again, it had the same hydraulics. So you'd push in and then it would push back. And uh, I think a few of us suffered a few, uh, a few issues after the trip. But uh, I think, yeah, the, I think not long after that, the machine got taken off the wall at Murrayfield and it's probably in a, in a dusty cupboard somewhere at Murrayfield. <laughs> yeah, I, I still can't understand why you'd want to do that. But when you stuck your head in a scrum against South Africa and 
Jim had up the headlines and told everybody what they were going to do to the scrum. And he almost took it personally, as Jim did often with those kind of things. I mean, by rights, you guys shouldn't have done what you did to a South African scrum. But there was that where you drawn all that education from Danny and Clubland and what you'd done. And you knew that if he does that, I'm going to twist them here or I'm going to just get into them there or I'm going to tickle them here. I, I think uh, that, I mean, the, the, the first scrum of the first test was, was a, I, I remember the feeling of shock and we had a little chat as a front row afterwards and it was, it was because uh, we went back about five metres and, and they really smashed us and and I, I think we were probably fitter than them and I think in, that's often under, underestimated at, at scrum time. You know, if you've, if you're too tired to scrum, then you can't scrum. So, but no, technically, uh, we didn't do that much analysis of our opposition back in that those days. It was more concentrated on on ourselves and you know what we were going to do. And hence the hundred scrum sessions at at the, at, uh, at the back of Loftus Loftus Versveld and just uh, again getting that tightness and that buy-in from from everybody. That actually, this was not going to be a weakness because uh, just because they say it's going to be a weakness. I, gu I mean, in, I guess in some ways, it's there are some parallels between playing South Africa then and now. If you, you look at the Springboks, they're they're a team that looks to physically dominate, of kicking, strong set piece, and really good defence. I, I guess we can say we we're going to beat them at their own game and kick a lot, have a really good kick chase and get our defence right. Or we can say we're going to try and speed up the game and play at a higher tempo. And I'm hopeful that we'd go for the latter because I think that would favour favour Scotland players rather than saying we are going to pick the eight biggest forwards we can and match them. let's try and match them physically, but also uh, beat them on the mobility and the, the actual rugby side of things. But it's a you know it's an interesting philosophical decision for them to make yeah and it, it's taken up hours and hours of everyone's time about what that's going to be how did it feel as the prop at the end of a game you know first test second test the backs are jumping around hugging each other can you remember is it hindsight do you remember what was it like in that moment when the final whistle went were you able to jump up and down or were you just absolutely done I think, uh, I mean, after the second test, I, of, of all the games, big games I've ever played in, that's probably the game I feel like we've been most dominated in by the opposition. We're chasing shadows for a lot of the game, just defending, defending, and just hanging on in there. So uh, I think everyone was pretty tired. But I think, you know, a, a lot of things in, in, in sport, and I guess in life, take a little while to sink in and, I think it's retrospectively you, you kind of look back and you, I think uh, after that second test, a, a lot of the players got got a bit of a, a sickness bug. There was uh, we had a tough weekend up in uh, it was uh, back at um, crikey, where was it in Pum near Pumalanga in, in a hotel in the middle of nowhere, and it was where the All Blacks stayed before the '95 World Cup final. Actually, so it's got and previous. It, it had previous, and, and and everybody got a bit. I think 
just the emotion and the the, uh, the physical exertion took its toll and we were you know we were running on empty in that last test but for and i think that's something geach and jim had talked about that if you want to win in south africa you need to win the first two otherwise uh, winning three is going to be tough and i think they're right and i think that probably goes for this next trip as well when you look back and you, you mentioned being in north queensland and complaining about things and then now that you look back you think how ungrateful maybe i felt when you were in those moments in south africa and apologies for harping on this but this is one of my favorites and i wish i'd been there and all those kind of things but i've watched that documentary 150,000 times and i'll watch it again were you able to enjoy it did you you know we see the speeches and we we get built up and ready to go out and battle and we're just sitting on our couch but were you able to sense the enormity of what you were doing and how long lasting that was going to be i, th I think b before the trip i was i was definitely aware of uh, the questions were being asked about whether the lions had a place in pro rugby and wh where that place was and how it would work and how important the tour was but uh, i think you know in in the moment i I remember um, just the absolute terror sit, sitting on the bus going to the first test, just thinking to myself, you know, what am I doing here? Why am I here? Why am I doing this to myself? I, you know, it was, I, I think it's something most rugby players will can relate to in terms of that, 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 that fear, fear of failure before a game. And then the whistle goes, and it, it all disappears, but uh, um, you know, I you know had a little routine before. You know, I'd walk around the pitch and had a little warm up routine before we started the the, the games. But uh, yeah, I, I think um, I was consumed in, in some ways in, in that moment by the 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 enormity of what failure would mean for me personally and the the pressure to perform. So. I guess it's looking back now that you you enjoy it in, in a way at the time it was uh just uh you don't don't cock it up yeah and i would say it would, it would be the same running out for the northern midlands in uh you know 1995 in the in a game against edinburgh it would be the, any game was the same and i think if you don't have that then uh you need to find it in yeah, a way that, you... uh, and maybe you know, with hindsight, I would maybe learn to challenge it into more positive things. But uh, you know, I, I guess that's what made me tick. So when you started, the idea of being a professional rugby player wasn't really a thing, and then rugby finishes and you become a coach. When did you decide you were going to become a coach? Was that? very early on or was it something just having learned a lot you decided right now it's time to implement this yeah i, I think at, at the end of uh, uh a playing career you it, it, it's pretty blunt cut off you you have to make a make a decision on what you want to do i think in an ideal world i would have um gone to maybe started a bit further down the chain and um learn the trade a bit more i think uh but it's you know it's difficult the reality of life sets in you've you've stopped playing rugby you've you've got bills to pay you've, you've got an opportunity on the table so 
so you take it and you learn you learn on the job but uh you know i i, I think um yeah i, I it's uh it's funny how how much the, the game has changed since i played and how much coaching has changed and i think um it's you know when you go into coaching and you try it, you you kind of actually realize that it, it, it's very easy as a player to say to point out what should be done and how things should be done better but uh actually when you're you're in that moment as a coach it's 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 much harder to to enact change and actually you don't necessarily control everything that you want to control so it's uh yeah it was it's been an interesting learning curve but uh you know i, I think um you know again we talk about hindsight um if i knew what as i played what i know now i would have shut my gob a bit more and, uh, <laughs> and uh, not wins you know what you know why don't we try this? this this is what we should be doing and actually just uh listened and lived in the moment yeah a bit like pundits in studios with their tight-fitting shirts and their uh, scarfs on giving the opinion on what should have happened what one of the bits i love about gregor is his experience as a player and how that shaped him as a person so he played in the amateur game he went to australia he played in france he played in england he played sevens he became a pro he you know he, he'd been to south africa his his playing experience is unique there are very few who can who can touch all the things that that he managed to you're not far off that your your experiences are really broad and it appears to me that you took chances when they came and then made the best of them it'd be very difficult to plot your course through your playing career did were you very open to opportunities would you have jumped at the chance to have gone and played in super rugby or now would you have jumped at the chance to go and play in america yeah i, I think um yeah like you said just being um, i think i you know i was uh, a married married man at the time so it was a decision for both of us and you know then kids come onto the scene but but you you, you do think uh you know how lucky are we 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 have an opportunity to to go and play in france for two years and in the southwest and just do something completely new and you know there were times it was you know just you know, you know doing here it's just mad and uh we um we went back to edinburgh for the birth of my my our first child and uh, i got a call from the the secretary of the president of the club saying you have to come back we have a game on saturday and we were in the hospital um my wife's waters had broken and i was they're saying you've got to come back and i'm saying i'm not coming back and uh, fortunately the coach uh called me afterwards and said don't worry about it you don't have to come back but uh this is just you know these are i i was uh it was crikey what was it, it was about four in the morning i was in it breathed my zoe my wife was back in uh, edinburgh and she called me and i missed the first two calls and then i finally answered it and she said it's happening it's happening so i got in the car phoned breathe airport and uh asked them to hold the plane which uh, <laughs> and which you couldn't do now but they waited they waited for me 
What, what, uh, to, tell me that covers. Did you say hold? The, do you know who I am? I'm Tom Smith. Hold the plane. Is that how no, that conversation I, went? I, no, I, it's funny. No, I, I said to my wife's having a baby. I need to. It was only. It was. It was a because we'd, when the Scotland boys went back for training, we'd fly from Brief to Paris. Then we'd get a taxi. We'd have to get a taxi from Orly to Charles de Gaulle Airport. Now, if you've ever got a taxi in Paris, it's the most frightening just you know that these guys i mean statistically the chances of us surviving 10 taxi trips across paris were quite low but we did this uh you know 10 times a season and we had three of us in the taxi just closing our eyes as this guy's driving you know cigarette in one hand and uh just whizzing through traffic at 150 kilometers an hour on the on the french uh equivalent of the m25 and uh so i did the same and managed to get back in time but uh you know it was it was uh yeah, it was it was good times actually you kind of um you know I, I think again you forget uh sometimes it could be pretty tiring sometimes uh you had a bit of a moan but looking back uh i wouldn't have missed it i would have missed it so of all the We've not even touched on what you did in Northampton. We've not even got... But of all the games that you played, what's the one that sticks out above all? If you could only keep one, what would it be? Oh, okay. Uh, I think um, probably the, the first test, 97. I think um, just in terms of the, the way the game, the expectation, the pressure before the game and the, the way we finished, with it finishing so strongly that I felt almost if we had another 10 minutes on the clock, we would have uh, scored another couple. And uh, it was just uh, um, a combination of relief and uh, um, exhilaration and just uh, the culmination of, you know, lots of hill runs in Dundee, lots of hard nights against Danny Harrington, lots of... <laughs> Days at Schumel, Watsonians, uh, <laughs> you know, and I think it was all uh, all worth it. I love it. I love it. And of the players you've played with, you've played with and against the best. And if we were picking an all-time Scotland 15, there would be a great debate about who gets to wear number one, but your name would, would be in there, if not a shoe-in. Who's the player that you've played alongside or played against and thought this guy's another level um do you know what that's uh um i mean the obvious one would be uh um general i think a few people would say that and uh just the you know i i think there'd be some debate as to, as to how he would impact rugby now, but I think he would still have a massive impact. I I remember um, we played the All Blacks at Murrayfield, and I remember um, General Lamer coming in and standing at the door and just being surrounded by kids, as you, you can imagine someone like Stuart Hogg would be now. And for the entire um, reception, he stood there just signing stuff and... I went and got him to sign something, had a chat and, you know, he actually, you know, he knew who I was and he was just, uh, yeah, as, as a person, I think, um, who embodied the, 
the values of, of rugby as well. But uh, such a, you know, the impact he had on the game, I think uh, it's difficult to over, you can't really overstate it. It's, uh, he just blew everything away. He brought a, brought a new level to, to, to what he did. He was just exceptional. And uh, yeah, I think, um, and he was a good man as well. So God rest his soul. I, I love it that to be able to claim as your own the first test for the Lions against South Africa in 97 and Jonah Lomu, I think is pretty much where we have to put a full stop on this because that is going to be very hard to trump. <laughs> but Tom, one okay. of the things I ask people to do when they're on here is to finish the sentence for me. So after all we've heard, I'm intrigued as to what this is going to be. But Tom Smith, happiness is... Ooh, uh, a nice glass of wine, um, a bit of sunshine, family and friends, and a game of rugby. Oh, that sounds just about perfect in the south of France. <laughs> Tom, thanks very much. I've absolutely loved speaking to you. It's been uh, probably more for me than for you, but a trip down memory lane and the names that you've thrown out and the games and the those memories are, are mine as well, not from being in the moment and playing, but from watching either on TV or in the stand or on a touchline. I've absolutely loved it. So thank you very much. I really appreciate it and all the very best for the future. Thanks, mate. Appreciate it. Great to see you. Thanks, Tom. Bye-bye. How good is Tom Smith? What an absolute hero. Everything he's been through, and he makes some time to speak to me on the pod. I just love him. 1997 was a huge, huge moment for lots of people in their British Lions lives. Not many of us have been able to tour with the Lions and see them up close and personal. And that fly on the wall was proper fly on the wall. And even though Tom wasn't the guy in front of the camera over and over again, you just got the feeling of this quiet guy just carrying on with professionalism at the time is what it was but contributing hugely to the squad and he's a very smart cookie and he still has such a brain and that little quiet humor that's in the back there come from a great place and so pleased to see him looking so well and doing so well the lions tour this summer everybody's excited for it and tom smith is a test lion who was willing to come and chat to us absolutely loved it and i hope you did too you can catch us on acast apple and spotify please subscribe leave us a review if you've enjoyed it give us some suggestions in the comments of people you would like to see on future pods we have got quite a lineup still to come but if you've got any ideas please let us know we'll also be on youtube and facebook so you can see it all happen and i hope you can leave some positive comments and let us know what you thought I loved speaking to Tom Smith. I hope you loved listening to it. My name is Bruce Aitchison and my happiness is egg-shaped. Hello, I'm Mayhem. Hello, I'm Chaos. And And our happiness is egg-shaped. Happiness is egg-shaped and loves a circle with no end. What's the point of this last night? And he said happiness is egg-shaped. Um, happiness is egg shaped and loves a circle with no end. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.